This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If John Denver were alive today, he'd be 72. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Denver was just 53 when he died in a plane crash in California. He touched millions with his folk-based pop songs, reaching superstar status in the 1970s. He was born Henry John Duchendorf Jr. in Roswell, New Mexico. He eventually fell in love with Colorado and settled in Aspen. More than a few people beat a path here after hearing Denver's popular anthem to his adopted state. The anniversary of his death is next week, and with that in mind, we're going to spend the next hour remembering John Denver, his life, his music, his environmental activism. First, to G. Brown from the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, which chose Denver as its very first inductee in 2011. Brown wrote about music for the Denver Post for 26 years, and he interviewed John Denver several times. Gee, thanks for being with us. Always a pleasure, Ryan. When we talked in 2011, you said that selecting John Denver as the Hall of Fame's first inductee was an easy choice. Why? I don't think there's any other performer who embodies Colorado like John Denver. Certainly in my travels, you meet someone from the other side of the world, someone from New Zealand, you say, yes, I'm, I'm from Colorado, and the first thing out of their mouth, oh, John Denver. John Elway might be a, a close second uh, in recent <laughs> years, but it's always been John at number one. Uh, despite his name, John Denver wasn't actually from Denver. Tell us about his early life. John, somewhat of a military brat, uh, headquartered in Texas for much of his young life. That's where his grandmother gave him his first guitar as a gift, and he was bitten by the music bug. Uh, He took the name Denver. He always said, you know, taking on the surname uh, to honor the the city that he loved, the state that he loved. But I have an interesting story from Randy Sparks of the New Christie Minstrels. Yeah. John spent a heartbeat in that group in the mid-60s before he went on to the Chad Mitchell trio and then his solo career. And it was with the New Christie Minstrels that Randy claims he told John that John Duchendorf was not going to fit on the marquee, and he needed to change his name. And this was, of course, his original name, Henry John Duchendorf Jr. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Yeah, hard German pronunciation, Deutschendorf. I don't know. Right. Exactly. Anyway, a lot of vowels and harsh consonant sounds. Anyway, uh, Randy told John that he had to take a stage name, that that would not fit on the marquee. And John, to Randy's telling, said, this is my father's name. I will never change my name. I will not dishonor him that way. Hmm. Randy said... Pal, you got 24 hours. We got to put something down here. And in Randy's office, the New Christie Minstrels had just had a hit called Denver, written about our city. It was a very minor hit nationally, but here locally, uh, charted highly, was number one on KIMN. Anyway, the sheet music was hanging behind Randy's desk, and someone looked at it and said, yeah, you're John Denver. And Randy maintains that's how how he he took it. But John had a more romantic telling of it. I'm dying to hear that song now. Can we listen to it together? If you can find it. Yeah. 
That may be the source of John Denver's last name. Denver joined a folk group, as you mentioned, G, called the Chad Mitchell Trio. He actually replaced Chad Mitchell. And this was kind of like a, a Kingston Trio type group. Is that right? Yes. Just the folk music of the day. And what kind of time did, did Denver spend in that trio? A few years. What really launched him was... Peter, Paul, and Mary covering his composition, Leaving on a Jet Plane. That established him as a writer, put some coin in his pocket, and then when he launched his solo career, he already had a leg up. This was in 1967. Why don't we hear just a bit of that? So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you'll wait for me. Hold me like you'll never let me go. That's, of course, the Peter, Paul, and Mary version. Why don't we fast forward to one of Denver's best-known songs, Rocky Mountain High, which came out in 1972. This is obviously his solo career. It's actually one of Colorado's two official state songs. And a little later in the program, we're going to hear about the fight to make it a second state song. Here's Denver himself reading from his autobiography, Take Me Home and talking about how he came to write the song while camping in the mountains outside of Aspen with his wife Annie and some friends. There happened to be a meteor shower that night. We were right below the tree line, maybe up around 10,500 feet, and we hadn't seen too much activity in the sky yet. There was a stand of trees over by the lake and about a dozen aspens scattered around. Around midnight, I had to get up to pee and stepped out into this open spot. It was dark over by those trees, darker than in the clearing. I looked over there and could see the shadow from the starlight. There was so much light from the stars in the sky that there was a noticeable difference between the clearing and everywhere else. The shadow of the starlight blew me away. I went back and lay down next to Annie in front of our tent, thinking everybody had gone to sleep, and thinking about how in nature all things large and small were interwoven. When swoosh, a meteor went smoking across the sky. And from all over the campground came the odd responses. Did you see that? It got bigger and bigger until the tail stretched out all the way across the sky and burned itself out. Everybody was awake, and it was raining fire in the sky. John Denver reading from his autobiography, Take Me Home, and telling the story of how he was inspired to write Rocky Mountain High. My guest is G. Brown, curator of the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. And G., why do you think that song, Rocky Mountain High, was so popular? (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure I'm an authority on what makes a hit, but I know that John was very proud of that song just because it became part of the vernacular. How many people write something that just becomes embedded in the culture? And the phrase Rocky Mountain High accomplished that for him more than any other song in his catalog. Though he'd be poor and mad if he never saw an Rocky Mountain High Colorado Rocky Mountain High I've seen it rain fire in the sky 
I think it worked as something of a Chamber of Commerce message for the state of Colorado, too. People, I just picture them packing their bags and heading for this mythical place described in the song, you know. I agree, and that might have been part of what created the backlash to John's career, at least here locally in Colorado. Some people resented the fact that he was letting the the word out. Did you, did you sense that as a resident at the time? Well, talking with colleagues about this, yes, that uh, uh, that backlash John suffered. I believe that there's been no more polarizing figure in the entertainment business over the last few decades. Uh, hmm. People incredibly passionate about his music and his detractors more vocal than <laughs> than any others. Uh, but I think a lot of that was centered here in Colorado because of his uh, his stances on the environment, the Olympics at the time, uh, spearheading the movement to keep the Olympics out of Colorado. Uh, Which was obviously very... Colorado successfully did with a vote of the people. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So John was kind of in the ferment of that. And I think here locally is where you had that real butting of heads. Uh, on, a, on a grander scale, I'm not sure that people were as passionate about hating him. <laughs> Outside of Colorado, bro. Uh-huh. Except that another dimension of the... Oh, I don't know, strong feelings about John Denver is that just a lot of people thought his music was sappy. I guess I see that through my prism as a journalist. Rock journalism was in its nascent stages uh, in the late 60s, early 70s when John came on the scene. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine, the underground press, people writing passionately about music. And when John came along, you had this generation of writers who were trying to find the way to make their mark, which would be writing about what was cool and that was who was wearing black nail polish or playing in some dumpy New York club. It certainly wasn't the guy from Colorado wearing granny glasses saying far out, right? <laughs> so I think that that kind of started the ball rolling, that he was one of the first people to be dismissed in that category of quote-unquote sappy music. When you were with the Denver Post, you interviewed John Denver several times. Mm-hmm. What struck you about him? Is there is there an anecdote you'd share? My favorite story uh, comes from the last time we spoke. He performed at Fiddler's Green Amphitheater, uh, early 90s. And we just got to reflecting on his career. And we talked about this dichotomy, the, the passionate fans and the, the detractors. Yeah. And John's point really resonated with me. He said he could take the haters, that that was something he was built to withstand. He didn't mind if people loved him or hated him. Uh, he, he could take that. But what he couldn't take was how it reflected on his fans, the people who had had a child born to his music, who had gotten married to his music. To call him the Mickey Mouse of rock or the Ronald Reagan of pop were the two examples he cited. But those diminished his fans, and that's the part that pissed him off. Do you have a favorite John Denver song? Uh, Without a doubt, it's Sunshine on My Shoulders. Why? I think that anyone who has an appreciation for the craft of record making finds that to be an undeniable record. Sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy Sunshine in my eyes 
Sure, the, the lyric, as the detractors would say, is a little too too saccharine, perhaps, but the the arrangement, the string arrangement by Lee Holdridge, John's vocal, the way that his voice starts to crack a bit and fray on the, the final verse and chorus, um, it's just a marvelous record. I don't know how anyone could deny that. Thank you for being with us. Always good to see you, Ryan. G. Brown is curator of the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. As G mentioned, John Denver launched his solo career after the release of Peter, Paul, and Mary's version of Leaving on a Jet Plane. But success didn't come overnight. It wasn't until 1971 and his fourth album, Poems, Prayers, and Promises, that he broke through, largely because of this song. Denver co-wrote Take Me Home, Country Roads with Bill Danoff, who sang in a duo with his girlfriend, Taffy. In December 1970, they opened for Denver at a small club called The Cellar Door in Washington, D.C. After a performance one night, they decided to go over to Taffy's apartment to try out some new songs. On the way, Denver broke his thumb when the taxi he was riding in got rear-ended. But after a stop at the emergency room, he finally made it to the apartment. And after a few minutes, they all took out their guitars. Danoff picks up the story. Taffy said, play him the Country Roads one. I've been working on this thinking, gee, if we could get this on to Johnny Cash, we would have it made. Because Johnny Cash was a huge star. He had a television show at the time. And uh, so, and it just didn't sound like it was John Denver's type, according to the stuff he was doing at the time. And I said, oh, he won't like it. And John said, well, play something. You've got to play something. Play, the, play me that one. So I played Country Roads, and he flipped out. He said, that's a hit song. Did you guys record it? And I said, no, we don't have a, a record deal. And he said, well, I've got a record deal, and I'm doing a record now. Why don't we record it together, um, John Denver and Fat City, which was the name we went by. So uh, we learned it. John, of course, couldn't play the guitar with a broken uh, thumb, so I played. And uh, I said, we need to um, rewrite the second verse. The second verse was something that wouldn't have gotten played on AM radio, and we need to write a lyric for the bridge, the middle part. Wait, what was it about that second verse that wouldn't have been played on radio? Well, it went, In the foothills, hiding from the clouds, pink and purple, West Virginia farmhouse, naked ladies, men who look like Christ, and a dog named Poncho nibbling on the rice. (laughs) There'd been this group of hippies, like a commune, that came to see us all the time. And there'd be about a dozen of them, and they brought Poncho the dog, and they'd sit up front in our shows in the nightclub. And uh, then one of the guys was an artist, and he would draw us pictures of stuff. And, of course, the day being what it was, the women were out there bare-breasted and uh, working in the fields, and the guys all looked like Christ. They had long hair and beards and... So I thought that's not going to make it on the radio. You can't have naked ladies in Christ in the same um, in the same verse. So there was some rewriting. What did John Denver contribute to this song? Energy, really energy. And if if there was a particular line, it might be the "All My Memories" line because that sounds very like John. 
And he actually had another song called All of My Memories. It, it was John's energy that made us focus on finishing. And the next night we performed it in the cellar door, and the folks clapped for about five minutes. And I'd never had a reaction like that to a song before or since. We did the, the next night the same reaction, and after the second show, John called his producer in New York and said, uh, book a studio time for Monday because i got a hit song and huh. bring my friends Bill and Taffy up, and that was it. Bill Danoff, speaking by phone from his home in Washington, D.C. You may be familiar with another song by Danoff, a little ditty called Afternoon Delight. He recorded it with his group, the Starland Vocal Band. And John Denver recorded several other songs by Danoff, including this one from Poems, Prayers, and Promises. I guess he'd rather be in Colorado He'd rather spend his time out where the sky looks like a pearl after rain Once again to see him walking Once again to hear him talking To the stars he makes And asking them for bus fare Guess he'd rather be in Colorado. More of our tribute to John Denver coming up after a break. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. You're back with Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're remembering singer, songwriter, and activist John Denver today. October 12th marks the 19th anniversary of his death. Tom Crum was one of John Denver's closest friends. They met in Aspen in 1970, and Crum, a martial arts instructor, became Denver's personal trainer and bodyguard. Together, they started the Windstar Foundation, an environmental organization based in Snowmass. It shut down in 2012. Tom, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. In John Denver's autobiography, he says, Tom convinced me that while I was really high from all of my success and fully willing to commit myself to and participate in worthy endeavors, I needed a grounding influence to bring back the spiritual impulses that I drew my music from. What exactly was he looking for? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, you know, John, I, I think anyone who listens to John recognizes that, that the music uh, came with great spirit. There was some, something in his voice that uh, uh, resonated with all of us and spoke to something a little deeper than just the uh, lyrics or just the, the ego involved in any singer. And it was that depth of spirit, that depth of heart, that depth of compassion, which I think really resonated with the the people around the world that, that made him one of the biggest artists in the world back in the 70s. Um, and I think, you know, a celebrity is a dangerous track, and that trajectory can lead you right out of the gift that brought you there. Huh. And I think John knew that. I think he wanted to, to have something that uh, allowed his uh, genuine vehicle for bringing a certain spirit and enthusiasm and heart uh, to the world not to be lost. This is really fascinating because, in a way, the authenticity of the art that catapults you to fame carries with it the risk of, like, real inauthenticity. Um, Something that starts as profound can lead to superficiality. Was he afraid of fame or what it could do to him? 
I think anybody who uh, is thrown into that at a young age recognizes at a deep level when they look in the mirror, you know, this isn't who I am. If I get carried away with this, I will get drawn into behaviors that doesn't support my highest purpose. I think one thing that was so special about John is that he recognized that he wanted to make a difference and he wanted to use his celebrity, whatever that was, to support him in making a difference. There's an awful lot of celebrities who want to do good things out there to increase their celebrity. John wanted to do good things and he used his celebrity to do that. So it's a little reversal. I think John knew that and I think John set the stage for a lot of the the Bonos and Sting and these other people who have done such wonderful things. I think he inspired them uh, because of his commitment to all the issues he was committed in, way beyond his music, hunger, children, social justice issues, nuclear nonproliferation, the environment, all of those things. That was John's higher purpose. So how did you keep him centered? What were the rituals or the practices you engaged in with him to, you know, make sure that he kept his eyes on the prize, I guess. (laughs) Well, I don't think anyone stays centered all the time. At least I haven't met them. But uh, I I think that if if one spends every day working on being present, starting with uh, uh, being silent, starting with just sitting, working on, on breathing, it's not only good for your vocal cords, it's also very good to get back to a place that's here, present, and conscious. And uh, those things we'd work on a lot. You know, when you're performing, as John did back in, the, in his heyday in front of 40,000 people a night, say in Madison Square Garden, two shows for over 20,000 each, and he would do that repeatedly for uh, months on end. John wanted to have everybody, 20,000 people, feel like a campfire and and have a pin drop. You could hear a pin drop, and you could. And to do that, you better be very conscious. And so working on that daily allows it to happen under the pressure of 20-some thousand people. And so it sounds like you really worked on meditation practices with him. Oh, absolutely. You know, the work that I do in teaching Aikido and teaching meditation, uh, I tried to transfer to John to support him and all that he was doing. And uh, if you look at the, the body of the good work that he did, you know, for the most part, he, uh, he was able to maintain that center. What did he love about Aspen so much? That, that's where you met in 1970, right? Yeah. yeah John was the first, first person I ever met when I, I was passing through Aspen to Jackson Hole and stopped in at this little gathering for only a couple of hours. And the first guy I saw was a little guy in granny glasses tuning his guitar. And I went over to him and we just caught eye contact. There were maybe only 20 people in the, this little gathering and walked over, said, hi, I'm Tom. He said, hi, I'm John. I said, what do you do? He said, nothing. <laughs> he said, I'm, a, I'm a, an unemployed singer-songwriter at the moment. And we laughed. And I said, well, I just got out of the corporate world. I'm heading to Jackson Hole. And that was about it. You never actually made it to Jackson Hole. You stayed in Aspen. Um, You also eventually became John Denver's personal bodyguard for many years. What did did that involve? Well, you know, John was on a rocket ship. Uh, He had called me. I had my academy going, martial art academy. I was also teaching school here and had a bunch of things going. And John had found out about what I was doing. And 
called, Chris O'Connor, his agent actually called, and I went up to John's home, and he wanted to be coached in uh, some of what I knew, and I began that process, and we became just like brothers. We just hit it off. There was such common ground. And then shortly thereafter, John was in L.A., and he gave me a call and asked if I'd come out to his studio. He really needed to talk to me, and I flew out there, and John and I are sitting there, and he says, Tom, I'm embarking on this major concert tour. I've never done it before. You know, the big Madison Square Gardens of the world and two shows a night. And we want to do it in a revolving stage, which is only about a foot and a half off the ground. People are about one, two feet, three feet away from it. No barriers, no, you know, a bunch of guys in t-shirts, big guys throwing guys back over the barriers. You know, he wanted to keep it 20,000 people and keep it like a campfire. And, uh, never been done before and he was concerned and he and he wanted me to be with him for that and and uh, also continue coaching with him and I said you know John I got a family I got a job I got a life I really can't do that and then John you know in his wonderful persuasive way said just give me three weeks it's a three-week tour and that's it that'll get me started well you know six years later I was still on the road with him so <laughs> Shows you the persuasive nature of the man, and, and, and also what he was doing in the world, it was, he was worthy of support. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Tom Crum was one of John Denver's closest friends. They met in Aspen in 1970, and Crum also became Denver's personal trainer and bodyguard. And in um, 1976, you and Denver started the Windstar Foundation based in Snowmass. What was Denver's vision for Windstar? Well, you know, John and I and others would have long talks. When you're on the road, you have long talks in the evenings, and they'd be very conscious about the world, about the environment, about the big issues that were going on. And it became apparent that it would be very useful, especially with John's power, in the world to create a place where people could gather, could have conversations, could create spin-off projects that would make a difference. And we had just come back from a wonderful uh, experience with the humpback whale that was encouraged by one of John's dear friends, Jacques Cousteau, that was incredibly inspiring. And of course, I Calypso was one of the great songs about the oceans and environment that John did. Yeah. But we had just come back from this incredible experience in the water with the humpbacks. And this Snowmass Monastery had a thousand acres of beautiful land. Uh, they had more than that, but they needed to let go of some of it to meet their expenses. They were having a difficult time. And we walked that land and saw the site map, and doggone if it didn't look exactly like a humpback whale. Even the little lake there had was in the place of the eye, had the flukes, had everything. And there was something quite magical about that moment, walking the land and seeing that, and that's how the land came to be. And in a few years, by the early 80s, we had wind generation experiments, we had solar retrofitting, we had college classes in it certified with through CU, we had uh, uh, biointensive gardenings, uh, biodomes, creating uh, aquaculture, and all kinds of uh, consciousness social issues uh, being discussed through workshops and symposia. So it was a it was a wonderful thing, probably ahead of its time. Well, it's the same with his John's music. You know, John's music spoke to the heart. It spoke to coming back to the environment. It spoke to uh, being present in consciousness and possibility. And 
that works great in the tough times. I think that's one of the reasons John's music was so successful in the 70s because this was the post-Vietnam days. It was still Vietnam, actually, for a lot of it. Uh, there were a lot of troubles, a lot of uh, issues going on, the Iranian hostage issue, the gas shortages. you know. And when things are tough, you come back to really uh, conscious music that brings you back to home and hearth. So in 2012, this foundation that you helped start with John Denver, again, Windstar, dissolved. Why? Well, you know, I think everything has its, its time, and it's important to recognize when it has passed its time. The beautiful thing was that one of the things that John and I always wanted was to have that land preserved forever. And uh, our relationship with Amory Lovins and the Rocky Mountain Institute and Hunter Lovins at the time was was a remarkable one, and they, they came and, and helped us preserve that land because the, the finances and budgets and all the programs I had talked about in the 80s were no longer really flourishing. And uh, although good things were trying to be done, uh, it was just a different time and different finances. And what uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute did with Windstar is create the Windstar Land Conservancy, and we put all of that land under conservation easement forever. You mentioned the Rocky Mountain Institute. This is an energy futurist think tank that is looking at how humans might be on the planet more sustainably. That's right. It's a think and do tank. Amory Lovins is one of the leading energy policy thinkers in the world. When you think about John Denver today, what comes to mind? What comes to mind is... Uh, the sadness that he's no longer with us, creating what I know would be great, not just music, but great thinking. Uh, and yet, a great joy that I'm so glad that he lived. Because every time you put on any of his music, and everyone has their own favorite song, which probably varies depending upon the time of day or the time of life they're in, but it brings back and inspires each of us. And uh, there are so many anthems there that speak beyond just the normal music that people think about, like Flying For Me. Well, I guess that you probably know by now I was one who wanted to fly I wanted to ride on that arrow of fire right up into heaven Flying For Me was this incredible anthem to space exploration. John was the one person who put all the pressure on NASA. He was very had a great relationship with them and would go down and to their meetings and fly their simulators. And he was the one who said, we need to put a citizen in space. We, he need to link NASA's work with the average citizen. And of course, John wanted to do that because he could write a song about it. And But because he was the one who pr was promoting it, they decided to choose a Kristen McAuliffe, a school teacher. And instead of John for that first flight, and of course, most of us deeply remember that flight, I think it was in 86, I'm not exactly sure the time, yeah. where the Challenger blew up. And if you can imagine what that did to John in terms of, wow, I was the one who encouraged such a thing. I was the one who wanted to be there, and, the, and it blew up. Um, they were flying for me, they were flying for you, they were flying for all of us, and out of that he created that song. So when a person hears that song, they really should listen to the backstory. 
Well, of course, I can't help but think of John Denver's own death, um, flying, piloting an aircraft off the coast of California. Tom, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Ryan. Tom Crum was one of John Denver's closest friends and also his bodyguard and personal trainer. He and Denver co-founded the Windstar Foundation, which is based in Snowmass. Denver died in a plane crash in 1997, and this month, at a party that we'll hear about later, fans will gather to remember him. After a break, we meet the former Colorado state senator who led the effort to turn Rocky Mountain High into the second official state song. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. On today's program, we remember the late singer-songwriter John Denver. He died 19 years ago this week. In 1973, Bob Hagedorn was a junior at the University of Colorado School of Journalism. He and his girlfriend at the time were camping in the mountains one night when they both hit on the idea that John Denver's Rocky Mountain High would be the perfect state song for Colorado. Of course, it already had one. That's Where the Columbines Grow, which was adopted as Colorado State Song in 1915. Well, fast forward to 2007, when Hagedorn, a Democrat, was representing Aurora in the state Senate. He led the drive to have Denver's anthem named Colorado's second official state song. Thank you for being with us. I appreciate being here. You know, Where the Columbines Grow seems like a nice song. Why did Colorado need a second state song? Well... First of all, is that I've never, you know, this was what, 15 years in the legislature at the time. I never once heard anybody play it or sing it. And That is uh, where the Columbines grow. Correct. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, I mean, and it's amazing when we had discussion uh, of uh, Rocky Mountain High, people would ask, what, you know, and these are legislators, mind you. What is the state song? <laughs> they couldn't name the original one. Correct. I see. But why Rocky Mountain High? Why that song in particular? Uh, it's so much, you know. It, it's so um, descriptive of the beauty of Colorado and why you know a lot of people love our state. I can't tell you how many people have told me over the years that the reason they came to Colorado was because of John Denver's Rocky Mountain High. Hmm. So I mean, it, it seemed like a natural to be the anthem for the state of Colorado. I wonder if in this. Bill, did you did you decide what the customs should be at state events, for instance? Like, is there some rule about which one gets played, or if if there's, you know, one one has priority over the other, or something like that? I think it's just up to whoever the host uh, entity is. But, okay. uh they want to decide to play. I see. Uh, I'm not, you know, I was quite impressed that you folks had a recorded version of where the Columbines grow. Um, <laughs> That's how obscure you th- you, you think. Well, I would is- I would suggest that Rocky Mountain High is probably a little easier to find, uh, and probably has had a few more downloads on iTunes than uh, where the Columbines grow. You did encounter some opposition from lawmakers who thought the song was, uh, at least in part, about drug use, particularly the line that goes, "Friends around the campfire and everybody's high." What did you tell people who said, we're not making a song with a drug reference or a second state song? Well, high is kind of a generic term. I mean, people 
can, uh, you know, win $500 in the lotto and get high over that. Uh, we had, and I used particularly the example is that uh, since I focused a lot on healthcare issues and there's always the occasional discussion of children having sugar highs. And uh, so what's a traditional thing to eat around, you know, the campfire, but s'mores and uh, chocolate, marshmallows and graham crackers. So you could have, you know, kids high. And, of course, there is obviously, uh, you know, popular uh, activity that is now legal in the state that <laughs> yes. uh, also uh, produces highs. You used this line of argument at the time, you know, that whole idea of a s'mores sugar high. And it, it actually got picked up by um, Stephen Colbert of the Colbert Report. Let, let's just hear that. Oh, great. The Colorado General Assembly has named John Denver's Rocky Mountain High their second official state song. Now, there was some concern that this song contained drug references in lyrics like, quote, everybody's high. <laughs> but I'm with State Senator Bob Hagedorn, who thinks the song's about being high on life, explaining, yes, drugs cause a high, but so do lots of other things. We could be talking about guys who've been fishing all day or kids picking out on s'mores with the chocolate. Exactly. Kids love the chocolate. And not only because they have the munchies. And let's not forget the fact that the Rocky Mountains are literally high. I can't believe I'm the first person to put that together. So relax, America. Rocky Mountain High is not about drugs. On the other hand, thank God I'm a country boy is. The sun's coming up. I got cakes on the griddle. Clearly a reference to blonde Lebanese hash. Were you surprised by all the media attention at the time? To be honest, I was absolutely stunned, flabbergasted, shocked. The New York Times picked it up. Yeah. From the New York Times, I'm assuming reading the story, the London Times picked it up. Japanese uh, media carried it. Uh, you were term limited out of the Senate in 2009. And as you've mentioned, you were involved in a lot of health care legislation. But Bob Hagedorn, let's face it, this is in large part what you will be remembered for. Um, you, are you okay with that? Well, I have a chuckle out of it. Of course, uh, I mean, I figure in about 35 years when I drop dead and the Senate does my memorial, that more than likely, you know, the lead of it's going to be, you know, the state second, you know, state song. And, uh, you know, it's something that, hey, you know, I'm not going to be around to complain. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it is, uh, I mean, I'm happy, very pleased with my legislative record. I did some pretty good things. And I think that uh, a lot of people are are actually quite happy that uh, we have Rocky Mountain High as our state song. I mean, my effort was not the first effort. And uh, there was a couple uh, groups of school kids that had tried to do it years before hmm. and um, it never got past committee. Did the song play at the signing ceremony or anything? Was there any pomp or circumstance once the bill was passed? Um, we had uh, we played it uh, upon third reading in the Senate. Just like blaring uh, on the floor? Yes, we had a boombox. And uh, <laughs> we had uh, the uh, House sent back an amended version. They did something, a little tweak to it. So the Senate had to accept House amendments and then readopt the bill. And so when we readopted the bill, somebody... Uh, hit the switch on the boom box and we heard Rocky Mountain High on the Senate floor. In the end, let's just say that the, the state Senate voted 26 to 8, the House voting 50 to 11. 
I'm sure that uh, lawmakers would be very happy to have that kind of vote spread on any other number of bills. We have not established whether it is your favorite John Denver song. Is it? Or is it just the most appropriate for a state song? It's the most appropriate for uh, a state song. Leave us with your favorite John Denver song. Oh, uh, the the thing is, is that I am one of these people that has been asked not to sing in church. And <laughs> oh, you don't that's, have, I don't that's mean... <laughs> how bad. I mean, when you ask me to lead into that. No, I don't mean that you have to sing it. We can play it. Well, I don't think that there's any John Denver song that I dislike. But I mean, probably uh, if I had to you know, say what was my favorite song, it would be Calypso. Thank you for being with us. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. Bob Hagedorn is a former Colorado state senator who led the drive to make Rocky Mountain High Colorado's second state song. After a break, we'll meet a John Denver superfan. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. On today's show, we're remembering John Denver. He was 53 when he died in a plane crash 19 years ago next week. And to honor him, fans from around the country will descend on Aspen for the annual John Denver Days. Holly Carter, a public school teacher from the Atlanta area, has been attending since 1999, and she's now one of the main organizers of what's come to be known as the John Denver Celebration Week, or simply Aspen in October. She joined me by phone. Holly, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. What goes on at this annual event? The main events are, I would say, music, yeah. whether they be formal gatherings or just a fun gathering at the Mountain Chalet. A kind of jam session? Um, it is a jam session. Um, it, it, we do it just about every night and most of the time after a concert. So we go from music to music. <laughs> but there are, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. We have people who play mandolin, banjo, guitar. We've had a drummer, a keyboardist there, so it's it's a lot of fun, and it's very informal. And that's, like I said, after the more formal concert. Yeah, so what do the main stage events look like? And, and I'm curious, throughout all of this, is there like some rule that you can only play John Denver songs? You know? <laughs> well, no, of course, there's no rule, but I think that's what the fans would prefer to hear. And, you know, John even did some songs that were, I guess you would say, cover songs for some other musicians. And, and occasionally the bands or the musician will play some of those songs as well. Hmm. And so what do those main stage events look like? What kind of artists come in? Well, uh, it just depends on the year because it really changes, um, you know, from year to year. But one particular band, Chris Collins and Boulder Canyon, have played every year, I want to say for at least the last, seven to ten years, hmm. and um, there was also, at the Wheeler Opera House, there have been concerts every year that were John Denver's former band members. What did John Denver mean to you? I, I, I'm curious to maybe even find out when you first heard his music. You know, my very first memory of listening to John, it was coming out of high school, getting in a car with friends, 
and riding down the road singing country roads as loud as we could possibly sing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and after that, it was Rocky Mountain High and then some of the love songs, of course, that came out of, after that, like Annie's song and Sunshine on My Shoulders. But those were my first memories. And I've always been kind of an outdoor person, even though I grew up in a very large city. The outdoors meant so much to me. And when I heard John's lyrics, it just hit home. It was like, this is what's important, the planet. And he knew how to, to put that into words and, and, and make you listen. Well, you, you talk about the love songs. I, I wonder if there's a John Denver song you hear and it just reminds you of heartache. <laughs> heartache. Just about any of John's love songs have a story to them that you can put to your own life, which I guess is why so many people can connect to them. I would say that it brings up heartache, it brings up joy, even, you know, families, it brings up, may bring up something you think about your own children. Can I ask you to pick a favorite John Denver song? That's a hard question, but I think that's probably my all-time favorite is a song called Rhymes and Reasons. Okay. It touched me in a way because it talks about the children and hope for the future. It talks about the environment a little. Actually, if you listen to that song now, it really pertains to life today. For the children and the flowers are my sisters and my brothers. Their laughter and their loveliness would clear a cloudy day. Like the music of the mountains and the colors of the rainbow. They're a promise of the future. And a blessing for today. John Denver's Rhymes and Reasons. And it's a favorite song for uh, my guest. Holly Carter is a huge John Denver fan and has translated that into coming to Aspen every year to celebrate his life. I'm guessing that John Denver's fans aren't getting any younger, Holly? I'm sorry, that's kind of an indelicate thing to say to you, but you know, how much longer can a celebration week go on like this as his career becomes, you know, further and further a part of history? You know, that's one of the things that we've actually thought about as we sit and we plan these events and we want to make sure that we can include something for everybody of all ages. And we have thought about that. How long will this go on? I believe that it will go on as long as there are John Denver fans that are willing to travel. So, yeah. and I believe that we've grown every year, and we really don't see it declining. The interesting thing is now people are starting to bring their children and even their grandchildren. And although when they first get there, they may be like, you know, what is going on here? And I'm sure they've heard the music because they've heard their parents or their grandparents listen to it. But when they hear it performed live, you wouldn't believe how these kids can get into it. <laughs> they absolutely love it. They sit there, they sing along, they want to be at all of the events. And so who knows how long it will go on. I mean, maybe future generations will, you know, make it even better than it is now. Thank you for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Holly Carter is a longtime John Denver fan and one of the organizers of Aspen in October, which takes place this year from the 12th to the 17th. I guess he'd rather be in Colorado He'd rather spend his time out where the sky looks like a pearl after rain 
And that's our John Denver special. David Hill originally produced the show. Matt Hers and Michael Hughes are our audio engineers. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. Bus fare. 